0: Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus. To enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room, and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com.
1: Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Alistair, you are... You know, back to your old
0: days of doing back-to-back media interviews. This is the day of the launch, but what can I do? Oh, Rory, we you stop plugging my book so relentlessly, just because you want me to do the same in September, which I will, by the way. Um, no, the launch is Thursday, um, but I did the first broadcast interviews this morning with Good Morning Britain, where I was quizzed about your dress choice at the coronation. We'll come on to that. And then I did the Today programme, um, where I was also able to discuss something which we're going to talk about which was a rather interesting speech that Justin Trudeau the Canadian prime minister made at his party conference about how to deal with this whole woke as a political challenge we'll come on to that and we're going to we're going to I think
1: talk briefly about coronation because we just come out of the coronation local elections in Britain and Russia and Canada on to the coronation so um I I was there sitting in the the transept so the sort of side bit of the church looking at the side of his majesty's head on his crown right and I actually had to watch the whole thing again on the television because you get a much, much better view with the BBC cameras than you do sitting in it. Were there not big screens around the place? I saw some screens. No, no, there was a little, little screen, quite a long way ahead, um, and it didn't really help me much.
0: How long were you in there before it started? And what happened if people of a certain age needed to, you know, go to the loo? Well,
1: this was the big, big problem. <laughs> so, um, set off at seven, got there, I suppose, about um, 745 and the service didn't start and proper until just before eleven when His Majesty turned up. Didn't finish to one, so y- you had a pretty long run. And as you can imagine, there are um, you know senior generals and members of the House of Lords. There was a, a, a one of the central figures in the whole coronation. Lord Singh, I think, is in his early nineties, and yeah. he was involved in having to hand one of the, the key bits of the Royal Regalia over. So this is a big problem. It's, and it was even more of a problem with Queen Elizabeth's coronation, which went on for, I think, something like five hours. Um, but there was a bit of an opportunity for people to nip out to the loo up until about half past nine. But I did notice that, that somebody told me he'd brought along a, a special device to pee into. I didn't want to ask too many questions about what that device was. Or how that works, but this was clearly Sorry, a big who problem. Did? For who people. did one of the older men? One of the older men said that he had a special device to pT
0: Okay, well, this is very interesting. And listen, what about the um, the kings and queens and the Macron's and the Jill Bidens? Did they have to sit around for hours as well? They got to come in a
1: little bit later than us, so they began to show up. I suppose just after ten. And that's when the sort of half past 10 is when the members of the royal family turned up. So we'd been there, I suppose, a couple of hours before the heads of state and the the royal family started turning up.
0: Talk us through the reactions that your Privy Council uniform was getting. I was getting a lot of very, very funny reactions, some of them from your former parliamentary colleagues, it has to be said.
1: So just to explain what I was doing for those who haven't been following this full thing, I decided to wear the uniform that Privy councillors traditionally wore to coronations. Um, and I someday I should tell you the full chaotic story of spending three days trying to get hold of this thing. Because as of the beginning of last week, the king had said that he didn't want people wearing formal garb for the coronation. And then that changed on Monday. So on Monday, it was oh. suddenly announced that he was happy with people wearing coronation robes and this sort of stuff. So I then tried to work out from Jordan, how was I going to get hold of this? And try to find somebody who could actually tell me what the correct dress was. So two central things happened. A man called Keith, who's the senior tailor in uh, Henry Poole, which is the last proper traditional outfitter in London.
0: <laughs> I can't believe you said that sentence. Say that again. <laughs> Henry Poole, the last what? Proper traditional
1: outfitter <laughs> in London that does <laughs> all this stuff. So he was he was he was equipping the Earl Marshal and the Lord Chamberlain sort of thing, was able to tell me what I was supposed to wear because actually what I was wearing was actually a little bit more informal than was written in the regulations. The regulations I was supposed to be in in white uh, silk stockings and white silk breeches. But he anyway this this man Keith very kindly explained that because the Earl Marshal was wearing trousers, it'd be proper for me to wear trousers with a gold band down the side, and then this extraordinary jacket. And I had to have a ostrich feather hat, a pair of white gloves, and I was supposed to have a sword on. Now, my sword was my father's sword, because he used to wear the same uniform when he was a colonial officer back in the 1950s. Did you have a sword? I didn't see the sword. No, so well, this was the problem. So my father wore the sword for the Queen's coronation, and I wanted to wear his sword. But then suddenly it became clear on the regulations they weren't going to let anyone in with the
0: sword. Well, even you, even even for so for security, for <laughs> well, in guess. case you chop the king's head off, what <laughs> exactly. were they thinking you were going to do with exactly. a sword? <laughs> exactly, well, I love this. So got this uniform
1: on, and then began going down a very weird rabbit hole on the internet, where you can see pictures of Churchill and Chamberlain and Lloyd George and all these people wearing this uniform, uh, and essentially they wore it a lot. I mean, this was their standard uniform to go into privy council meetings. Actually, slightly different privy council meetings. Less gold for the council meeting, more gold for these kind of royal ceremonies. Turned up in it, and then found, slightly to my astonishment, that I thought lots of other people would be wearing it. The person who was really meant to be wearing it was Penny Mordant, who was walking in front of the king. So she decided, to my astonishment, not to wear what uh, this black thing with gold frogging down the front, but instead to wear. Maybe describe what she was wearing.
0: Well, it was it was not like a cape look. With a, she looked great. I thought she looked absolutely fantastic. And um, unfortunately, there's lots of stuff doing the rounds on social media that she's taken the Privy Council gold bit on your tunic yeah. and put it onto her part of her headgear. But apparently, it's also the logo of Poundland and it's also the same, <laughs> it's also the same color. But I have to say, Roy, I was in awe of her arm and shoulder strength. I do think, however, it is evidence of the total madness of the Conservative Party and indeed of our media, that from that basis of her being able to hold a sword for a couple of hours in an upright position and look great, like she was in some sort of amazing James Bond film, is that the headlines within hours became, "Is are we looking at the next leader of the Conservative Party? (laughs) And of course, uh, bear in mind, she was given that job Lord President of the Council by Liz Truss as a way of getting her out of public attention because Liz Truss was a bit worried about how popular she might be. <laughs> no,
1: pretty, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. I saw someone on Twitter saying that that uh, given that we weren't living in King Arthur's Round Table, they weren't certain that being able to hold a sword for a long time was necessarily the best qualification for no for leaving the country.
0: I've got to say, Roy, I thought you looked very, very splendid in many, many ways. I think Humza Youssef stole the show in terms of fashion.
1: I met him there. It was amazing. A Diamante jacket on top of his kilt.
0: So hold on, Roy. we've got to our first crucial question here. So you were face to face with Humza Youssef. And I presume you said, Humza, (laughs) now that you're the first minister, I'm sure Alice would be very interested in having you on the podcast. I'm sure you said that, did you? I didn't, that What about the heads of state and government? I, uh, did you get I I, I, Alistair, I, I, I I
1: completely failed. Andy Burnham was very keen to come on. If you'd like to get, I'd like to get Andy Burnham on. How about Andy Burnham? I'd like, I'd like Andy okay, Burles.
0: Andy, Andy, if you're listening, I think what would be good with me and Rory from different sides. What about if we got Andy Burnham and Andy Street on together? Very good, very good idea. Let's just talk very briefly about whether you. We've got quite a lot of questions, Rory, asking whether you and Shoshana going to Pizza Express in the Privy Council uniform was an act of trolling of Prince Andrew. No, it was not. It was was an act
1: of massive frozen cold. It was really cold in there. And Shoshana wasn't wearing a coat. And no cars can get anywhere near Westminster Abbey. So we were walking down Millbank, getting colder and colder, uh, and stopped in Pizza Express for a meal.
0: The other question which a lot of people asked, was, did you have the dough balls? I did not have the two no. Okay. Now, should we talk about the, shall we talk about the, 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 the one issue related to the coronation, apart from your address that I was asked about on Good Morning Britain, which is the policing? Yeah. And, and in particular, the policing of the protests by the anti-monarchy group Republic. Um, what did you make of that? Were you aware it was going on until you got out of church? I
1: wasn't aware until we got out of church. So a little bit of, again, history for listeners who've not been concentrating on all of this. Um, the A new Public Order Act was passed, just came into effect four or five days before the coronation. And it was particularly focused on a new offence of locking on. So locking on, as, as everybody will be aware, is a way that protesters slow down things by attaching themselves to roads or to railings. And this was particularly, I think, prompted by Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil. Um, just Stop Oil in October blocked almost every day the traffic on London's busiest streets. And you had Keir Starmer, in fact, coming out saying he wanted longer sentences against this. And it'd been very clear that he, and I guess this is a part of his appealing to Middle Britain, he hasn't taken the extreme progressive liberal view on this. He said that he gets fed up with people delaying. Now, with the Public Order Act, when it passed, the idea was for the police to be able to deal with disruption and deal with it before it happened. And it's been very controversial for very good reason, because it gives the police much more power to get in the way of demonstrators. And in this particular case, they arrested for conspiracy to lock on a series of people from the Republican movement and held them for 16 hours, having detained and searched them. And essentially, all they were doing was unloading placards. And it's very, very, very worrying. It was a massive overreaction by the police.
0: Do you think it's possible that the police did that because they were trying to test this new legislation or because they were reading or possibly misreading political signals from the likes of Suella Braverman?
1: Well, I think they're obviously in a difficult position. They were obviously under a lot of pressure to make sure the coronation went smoothly. They deployed a very, very large number of officers. I met officers down from Police Scotland, as I said, who'd come down to help. But we cannot end up in a situation where lawful demonstration is stopped. And we mm. can't just use the excuse of disruption to do this. And, you know, I am, a, I'm a passionate, passionate monarchist, and I would have been very sad to see the coronation disrupted. But equally, I passionately believe that people should have the right to be able to demonstrate. Mm.
0: And also, I didn't, you know, as, as I know from the People's Vote campaign and other campaigns I've been involved in, when you organize protests and marches and so forth, you go through the police, you have to apply for licenses, you have to get permission and so forth. and According to Graham Smith, the head of Republic, they'd been talking to months for months to the police about what they might do, and right up until the day, were told that what they were planning was perfectly fine. So, something obviously changed. He's now demanding a sort of proper inquiry. But, what did you think about Lee Anderson? Sorry to bring him up again, but what do you think about him saying, If you we live in a monarchy, if you don't like it you can just emigrate. I mean, part, mo- a lot of those people, I suspect, if they did emigrate, would like to emigrate to the European Union, but we can't because of people like Lee Anderson. But what do you make of that as a sort of-
1: well, I, think it's, I think it's a terrible, it's a terrible type of political messaging. I mean, you can use that for almost anything. You know, if you don't like it, leave the country. It's a, it's a horrible way of approaching people who've got a perfectly legitimate right mm. to challenge the current constitution. I, I support them, you know, for example, I support the monarchy, but I don't like our electoral system. I want to push for proportional representation. I don't want Lee Anderson saying to me, if you don't like the first parts of the post-electoral system, move to another country. I have mm. every legitimate right to protest the way the constitution works.
0: Presumably when women were fighting for the right to vote, he would have said, look, if you don't like living in a country that where women don't vote, leave the country. But then the country would have died because there would have been no further procreation. I wonder if Lee understands that basic point <laughs> about humanity. Now, listen, should we, can I just say to you, Rory, this, this Penny Morton thing? Lord Presidents of the Council, I looked up the list just it's quite incredible. Alec Douglas-Hume, in the year when I was born, he was the Lord President. Quentin Hogg, uh Richard Crossman, Willie Whitelaw, your predecessor, Michael yeah. Foote, Christopher Stomes, Francis Pym, uh, John Wakeham, Jeffrey Howe, Peter Mandelson, Margaret Beckett, Robin Cook—some pretty big names have done that job. So maybe Penny is the one. It's a funny title. Just
1: to explain to people what it is, what what it, it's largely ceremonial, but it has been used in two ways. Sometimes it's been used for moving people sideways. So it's a move that they did, for example, with Chris Grayling when they moved him out of running a full department. In other cases, as with your friend, Peter Mandelson, it's sometimes done to reinforce the ego of the person and make them feel even more important by giving them this grand title alongside. Oh my God, what a, <laughs> what a slur. What a slur. You're talking,
0: talking about, about the title too, deputy prime minister. <laughs> exactly. I, he called I, first secretary I, of <laughs> state as well. Yes, yeah. he was. He did have a very long title at one point. I, as you know, I'm not really into titles. You're not really into titles. Quickly, on
1: the local elections, we did quite a lot on that. And re- refer people, if they want, to our local elections special, where I think we did pretty well, and I think we laid out mm. most of the arguments around it. Um, but any any other thoughts that you've had since yeah. on the local elections? Well,
0: a couple of things. First of all, I got picked up rightly by quite a lot of people saying that I sounded very dismissive of the Greens. And, and I, I know uh, it was actually, I was just trying to shut the conversation down because I was getting the message to say, let's move on. Um, but the Greens did do very well. But I think actually, I've been reading, as you know, I have a son who works in the the gambling industry and in mainly in sport, but he also follows the betting markets very, very closely. And I think I've said to you before that the betting markets are a much more reliable way of looking at uh, some of this stuff than, than, than the polls. And what I think is important to understand is that the first thing is that they, the results genuinely were worse than the Tories were expecting. Um, and, and those who are being, I'm sure you'll have talked to others, you know, that those who are being honest about the outcome are saying it was worse than they expected. And the point about this projected national vote share is that you're talking about local elections where I think I'm right in saying that um, independents, others, were on 19. Now, in a general election, that is not going to happen. And the other thing to remember, even though this is millions of people voting, far more people didn't vote. And so the question then is, where do they break? And if you look at the polls on that, the majority would break for Labour rather than Tories. And also this tactical voting thing, I think, is really important. Because, and you know, some people may not understand what's going on here. But essentially what's happening is that people who are driven mainly by a motivation to get rid of the government, are looking to see which other candidate is most likely to win that seat. Now, that happened in a local area, but once that starts to happen through national politics, and once the parties start to make clear they're quite happy about that, I think that becomes a real problem for the Tories.
1: So I think one way of uh, summarizing it is that the Conservatives did badly, worse than people predicted. So Colin Railing was predicting 1,000 losses. John Curtis, who's another famous pollster Sir John Curtis was saying that actually the Conservatives could be worse than a thousand when he predicted it but they did do worse than a thousand um on the other hand the same people who were predicting the Conservatives could lose a thousand were predicting that labor would take more than seven hundred additional seats and they didn't mm. they took five hundred and thirty six and compared to twenty twelve where they gained eight hundred and forty seven seats so I think the the summary should be conservatives did badly. Lib Dem and Greens did very well. I mean, this was the best result ever for the Greens, best result for the Lib Dem since 2010. And that's interesting for someone like me, who's very interested in the center ground, and whether there is room in the center ground to build. Um, But you're absolutely right. It's nothing to uh, depress uh, Keir Starmer about. I think what you would say, though, is that Labour needs a seven-point lead to have a majority. they got a nine-point lead here. But there's nothing to be complacent about either, because there's some time to go till the general election. And if Rishi Sunak began to improve his performance, you can get to a situation quite quickly where Labour could end up with the most seats, but not an overall majority.
0: Yeah. I mean I, I, I think that's right. And I think that the, the current the current betting odds have got Labour majority five to six on. That means, you know, basically the market thinks the likelihood is very, very high of a Labour majority. No overall majority, thirteen to eight. And a Tory majority is seven to one. That is, that, is, that is almost becoming like a kind of outside bet. But I, I, I also think, though, that from Labour's perspective, and, and this speech that I'm doing on, uh, on Thursday at Europe House, it's the Julian Priestley lecture. Julian was a, a British guy who was a very senior civil servant, sadly died very, very young, um, but in Brussels. And there's an annual lecture in his name. And so, you know, the speech isn't all about Brexit, but obviously, given the audience, a lot, a lot of it is. And I really do believe now that Labour and the Lib Dems can afford to be a lot more confident about taking them on over Brexit. Not by saying we're going to go back in, but actually by saying, Neil Kinnock has this wonderful line, which I think Labour ought to use, you know, we're paying the price, the real bills of the bungled Tory Brexit. And I think Labour, I think young people in particular, this is partly what the book is about, but I think that that so many young people sort of feel their future is being stolen and yet there's nobody really articulating that for them. And so I I do think that Labour and the Lib Dems can be a lot more robust in campaigning against the Tories on Brexit. And don't forget, Rishi Sunak, unlike Johnson, Sunak believed in this and he actually did. The, The media do this sort of, you know, Oh, Sunak, unlike Johnson, he sort of looks at the numbers. He's a great technocratic problem solver. Let me just give you a quote from him at the time. I'm not ideological about it. Somewhat analytically, I sat down and looked through the numbers on Brexit. Well, the numbers don't look very good now. So that was his first big political call and he got it badly wrong. You're going to be,
1: I guess, saying that Labour can move into a more confident position and the Lib Dems a more confident position on Brexit and that they should do before the next election.
0: Definitely, definitely. And I think it's so a Labour at the moment we have got this line, we're going to make Brexit work. I think that doesn't speak to where the country is on Brexit. I think they've got to say we're going to fix the problems that Brexit has created. Brexit has created real big problems for the country and we've got to fix them. But if you don't admit them, then how can you begin to fix them? Let's just talk briefly about your old party. Um, yep. Maria Prober asked this question, which I think is really interesting. After the awful local election results for the Conservatives, do you think Rishi Sunak will get rid of Suela Braverman or move further to the right of the party? Interesting how John Redwood was one of the first voices out, sort of laying the blame a little bit at Sunak and saying, it's got to be more tax cuts, blah, 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 blah. But do you think Braverman is becoming a bit of a symbol of the of the, of the the politics of the choice? Yeah, she, is, she, she is a symbol. I mean, I think the, the the problem is
1: that Rishi Sunak is in a very, very tricky situation. Because, there are obviously the Braverman right-wing faction, the Conservative Party, which remember that faction, the Conservative Party, generally has the majority of Conservative Party members. They tend to be to the rights of the general population. And they will feel that Boris Johnson's successes in 2019 in the general election and then in the last local elections uh, vindicate their view that voters want more right-wing red meat stuff and that that's why the Conservatives won uh, seats in the northeast and they'll be disappointed they're not getting that out of Rishi Sunak. Mm. And then on the other hand you've got me and people on my side who are you know the sort of centre left of the party who are horrified by Sola Bravman, and who feel that we're going to lose all the seats in the commuter belts around London that are going to the Lib Dems because we are not detoxifying the party and we need to get back to the centre ground if we're going to have any hope of defeating Labour at the next election. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And you can see that in the local election, because in a sense, we're both right. He is losing, unfortunately, votes in the core areas of the Red Wall that he wanted to keep, because they don't feel he's, he's being passionate enough about Brexit. And of course, the Conservatives are losing a lot of votes to the Lib Dems, mm. um, with voters like me who feel that they need to get rid of Swahil and move more to the centre. So he's in a very tough situation. and and he's. But then famously, is, was it LBJ who said... If you can't ride two horses at once, don't get into the political circuits.
0: Just maybe a final point on this, which I I think is worth reflecting on. I still believe that the reason, one of the big reasons Johnson won in those seats was nothing to do with Johnson, a lot to do with Jeremy Corbyn and people's fear of Jeremy Corbyn as as prime minister. It was a very interesting moment when we were watching the, the coronation and where Keir Starmer and Ed Davey, they were sitting together. And as the procession was coming down, the cameras were following it, following it down. And you just saw this in the background almost, Keir Starmer and Ed Davey sitting there. My Fiona just just saying, hmm, they look quite safe together, don't they? And I, I, think, I think there's something about it's not Corbyn. And, yeah. it's, it's, you know, and, 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 and I think both Ed Davey and Keir Starmer look quite solid as characters. And yeah. I think that's a big change. Well, listen, should we have a little break? Very good. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics
1: with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And we're going to just encourage people to search leading Gerry Adams. Alistair and I did an interview with Gerry Adams when we were in Belfast. So Gerry Adams, who was the, the the leader of Sinn Féin, very, very controversial figure, very closely associated with the IRA and the terrorist attacks in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And of course, a key part of the Good Friday Agreement too, because him and and McGuinness coming on board was, was vital to bring peace to Northern Ireland. So it's a tough lesson, I think, particularly for people like me that, that feel that he is still completely unrepentant about terrorist attacks on civilians, killing, you know, completely innocent people. I feel in things like the Brighton bombing, but worth a listen because it's also a reminder of what it took to make peace.
0: Mm. I, I think it was a, uh, a tough listen for a lot of people, and that's coming through. I mean, a lot of people are listening to it. There's no doubt about that. It's getting a lot of traction. We recorded the interview and then did the kind of our, our little chat afterwards. There was quite a gap between them because we were running around all over the place in Belfast. And I got a very, the other Rory, the main Rory in my life, Rory, he sent me this message. Really enjoyed your interview with Jerry Adams. My favorite bit, though, was after he'd left and Rory asked you how he's changed, and you said he's a lot more empathetic now. That was literally 15 minutes after he'd basically told Rory he deserves to be dead for being in the British <laughs> Army. So I, I, I had, I, I'd forgotten that bit where you, he did, didn't he? It was quite, it was quite menacing when you said you weren't, in a, you weren't a soldier for very long and he said you were very smart. So, yeah. No, but I think, I think it's, it's difficult, this, and there are a lot of people who feel that, that quite a lot of people saying we shouldn't have given him airtime. I don't believe that at all. I think he's an important historical figure. Without him, the peace process would not be in the place that it's in. Um, and I don't think we skirt, we didn't skirt round or run away from the difficult questions. The point about, somebody said, you know, you only asked him once about being a member of the IRA. The fact is, he's been asked it a million times. And I, we could have asked him it for half an hour. We'd have got the same answer again and again and again and again. Exactly.
1: And he lies every time. I mean, he was a member of the IRA, but he doesn't want to say he was a member of the IRA.
0: Correct. And he was involved in some very bad things, but doesn't want to say it. Search Jerry Adams leading wherever you get your podcast. Now, talking of somebody who is, I mean, it's quite extraordinary if you think about it, Putin. Victory Day in, in Russia is celebrating the defeat of fascism. Uh, and yet here we are with a fascist in charge. And, and very
1: loyal listeners, the rest of his politics will remember that we did a long session on the last Victory Day parade.
0: Never mind loyal listeners, Rory. I'd I've, I've forgotten that we did that. <laughs> I'd forgotten that.
1: <laughs> what did we say? We looked at Putin's body language. We said that he's looking elderly. We were struck by the fact that people had expected him to provide a very, very aggressive speech. It had been less aggressive oh, yeah. last year than people expected, but that's also where he, he gestured towards the general mobilization. Quick update on where we are in Ukraine, because we don't we don't speak about it a great deal and we should do more on Ukraine. And, and one thing I did manage mm. to do this morning is reach out to my friend, General David Petraeus, ex-head of the CIA. Mm-hmm. And we're going to try to get him on the podcast to talk about this because he's been concentrating very hard on it. Two words that people need to concentrate on if they're thinking about Ukraine. The first is Bakhmut. Bakhmut is where the mm. Russians have been driving a very, very heavy offensive over the last few months. And the second word you need to focus on is counter-offensive, the Ukrainian counter-offensive, which is being brought together. So Quickly on those two, Batmuth is a city that was originally about 80,000 people, only about 10,000 people left in it. And since the end of last year, there has been this horrifying fight. And if people look at photographs of what's happening around Batmuth, you can see scenes that literally look like the trenches of the First World War, blasted mud and trees, probably 20,000 Russians killed over the last few weeks trying to get into the city, 80,000 injured. March twenty third, they managed to capture the eastern half of the city up to the river. On and on it goes. Very stubborn defense by the Ukrainian, very aggressive attacks by the Russians. News just in the last day that the head of the Wagner group, which has played a big part there, is complaining he's not getting ammunition resupply, which slightly disrupted the May Day events. Um and nobody quite sure what the limited value what the military value of this city is at all. I mean it's on a a mm-hmm. couple of roads, and it brings them a bit closer to being able to shell Ukrainian positions. But there's a horrible feeling that this is about sunk cost, that so many lives have been sacrificed, so many people have been injured, that neither side is prepared to blink in their fight for the city.
0: When I was doing the interview with the Today programme, on before me was Steve Rosenberg, who's the BBC's Moscow correspondent, uh, who I think has been excellent in this this whole business. Um, And it must be incredibly difficult covering it there when you know that you see what's happened to some of these American journalists who've been carted off and so forth. But he was making the point, and this is another thing that I I write about a lot in the book, is that Putin has, as a symbol of post-truth politics, he is the main guy. I mean, he and Trump really are the ones. And, you know, yet again today, he's talking about this, they're protecting the Ukrainians. It's about tackling the Nazis. It's about Russian motherland being under attack and so forth. And it's very, very, very difficult to counter that when you have now such repression going on. And I don't know if you saw, but th- there was a situation in recent days. For th- this, is the f- this is the first in, since the Ukraine war started, where there have been arrests at a theater for people who are putting on this play, The Brave Falcon, which has won lots of awards. And it's actually based on transcripts of Russian women, a bit like Shamima Begum, I guess, who have joined ISIS and their offences are radical feminism and justifying terrorism. Amazing. And then, and the other thing, Steve Rosenberg was asked about how many Russian lives have been lost in this war, and he said we don't we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. The last figures were six thousand, and it's clearly way way more than that. I think this dispute with Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group, is very interesting. He, I don't, know, I, I don't listen. I've never met the guy. I don't know, but he strikes me as somebody who is very, very good at using profile. I mean, he feels like, I think most people following this would think he's kind of running the show militarily. And yet he's recently been standing in front of lots of dead bodies of Wagner soldiers, mercenaries who've been killed, and shouting and sort of swearing at the generals who are meant to be in charge of the whole thing, who basically are saying, you know, and he's saying that you're not giving us what we need. Yeah, very, very dangerous figure, I think, for, for, for,
1: for Putin to, to deal with, because he's clearly got an independent view. He's quite a nationalistic. Um, he's, he's a man who was a, he was a convict. He was meant to be very mm. close to, to Putin. Uh, he was known as Putin's chef because he had a lot of restaurants. He was meant to be involved in interference in the US elections. Uh, the FBI actually has a reward of $250,000 for arresting him at the moment. He's a professional cross-country skier. He robbed upscale residences, um, heavily involved in the grocery store business. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. Um, A loss is now resting on whether Ukraine can mount what's called a combined arms counteroffensive. And this is a very, very complex attempt. And a lot's riding on it because Ukraine, to keep its support from the West to justify the tens of billions of dollars it's received from the United States and others, now needs to demonstrate this year that it can recapture territory. And it had that great success the end of last year, you'll remember with Kharkiv and Kherson, which they took in November last year. But those were taken largely by surprise. And this time, Russia is not likely to be surprised. And Russia's got 500,000, half a million troops on the ground. And the Russians traditionally are supposed to be quite good in defense. So what Ukraine is trying to bring together is a massive combined arms response. And that's going to be Armor, so tanks of which they've now been supplied with quite a lot, supported mm. by artillery and mortars to suppress infantry moving forward, anti aircraft batteries to disrupt uh, Russian aircraft, electronic warfare to disrupt their communications, logistics close up to get the water and the food and the ammunition resupply. All of this moving together to try to crash through the Russian front line. And there was been some very mm. interesting comments by the the Czech president, who's a, a, was actually a, a famous ex-soldier, on how difficult this is going to be. Trying to warn them not to rush it because a lot is now resting mm. on this this year.
0: Did you say you talked to Petraeus, or you just been in correspondence with him? I've I've been emailing with him. Did he give you a sense of where he sees it going? Yeah. So
1: Petraeus and would would hopefully get him on the podcast soon. He remains pretty confident that Russia is in an impossible situation that it's going very, very badly, going miserably for them is the phrase that he uses. And Mm. he's pointed out that the support they were hoping to get from China, military support, hasn't really come through, that it's quite an unequal partnership, that Russia's supplying China with oil and precious minerals at a discounted rate, but China has held off providing real, proper, lethal support. Unlike the Iranians, Mm. of course, who've provided these, these
0: drones, very, very effective Shahid drones. So listen, can we talk a little bit about Canada? Yeah, we don't we, we, It's quite interesting. Canada's a G7 country, part of the Commonwealth, but if you think about how often we've talked about Australia uh, and New Zealand, but we don't really talk about Canada very much. And I was invited to speak at the, at the Liberal Party conference, and I, I wonder whether if I was still a member of the Labour Party, I'd have been allowed to do that, because the Labour Party's actual sister party is the NDP. Uh, the New Democratic Party, which is to the left of the Liberals. But Trudeau, I think you and I would agree, is a pretty important figure in the center left of, of, of politics around the world. And of course, his dad, very, very famous prime minister, Trudeau mania and all that, Pierre Trudeau. I think he won four elections. And, but what was so obviously, because I was invited to speak at it, I followed it a lot more closely than I might otherwise follow the um, the Canadian Liberal Party conference. But I really do recommend that you have a look at, um, at Trudeau's speech. I find it very, very interesting because he took on this woke business. Um, they've got a, a new leader of the Conservative – well, not new, but they've got a leader of the Conservative Party called Pierre Poilievre. And when you watch some of his stuff, particularly on social media, he's got a touch of the farage about him. And he's constantly going on about, about um, Trudeau being woke, whatever that means. Um, And he's got this, I'll just read you this very brief section in the speech. Hey, Pierre, it's time for you to wake up. And of course, if you remember, the original meaning of woke is being awake and alert. Wake up to the fact that a gender-balanced cabinet is a good thing, that women fully participating in the workplace is a good thing, not something to snub when it gets a shout out from the President of the United States and the House of Commons in Canada is... Wake up to the fact that under our government, fewer people with disabilities are facing poverty. Wake up to the fact that more mums are building careers because we've made childcare affordable. And let me tell you something, $10 a day childcare is not woke policy, it's economic policy. And I read that and I thought, hmm, that's interesting. He can see the attack coming for the campaign against Poitiers, and he, he had another line, when trolls, saying to the party members, when trolls try to bait you into their culture war talking points, don't fall for it. And I noticed in the local elections, you you may not have seen this, but The Sun in particular, they had a, I think it was a huge front page just beho- before the local elections where they did a, a big poll on woke and the front page headline was, you know, Britain says no to St- softy Starmer's woke Britain. Woke policies, as it were. So I think, you know, the Tories here are going to try and do the same thing. So I, I would recommend to the Labour Party here that they have a good read of that speech. Just on, on Canada quickly. I mean,
1: it is fascinating. It's a really, really interesting party. The, the Liberal Party has dominated Canadian politics. I mean, 70 years, the 20th century it was in power. It's almost in the same, oddly, the same way that the Conservative Party has actually historically dominated British politics. It's mm. the left Liberal Party that's yeah. dominated, um, Canadian politics. And partly because a little bit like the Conservative Party in Britain, it's reinvents itself very dramatically. Mm. Yeah. Um, every generation, I mean, it it went from being the the great party of sort of local patronage to a big pan Canadian party. Then it became a regional party. Then it reinvented itself for four party systems. Um, mm. Trudeau again, very interesting. The Liberal Party was basically wiped out, or felt as though it had been wiped out in the period leading from two thousand six through to twenty thirteen. Almost disappeared off the map. Had become third in the polls. And Trudeau in 2015 took them back with an astonishing 39.5% of the mm. vote, 184 seats. Since then, 2019 2021, he's been in a position where the conservatives have had a bigger share of the popular vote in the last two elections, and he's had to rule through a coalition. And you can sense um his own party getting a little bit, I mean, this part of this woke stuff, a little bit uncomfortable with whether he's going too far to the left. He's had to pull back on medical assistance and dying. He's had to pull back on a, a bill recently on gun control um, because people are clearly feeling a pressure from the conservative party. And from this, as you say, this very, very disturbing, slightly unpleasant conservative leader who came originally from something called the reform party, who was the attack dog of the right. Who's been very brutal about carbon taxes. And again, there's been some quite interesting comments about the way the conservatives got their funding together and the way that they, were reading out of Trump's playbook on social media and attack ads uh, last time around. So Canada is a big, big center point for this discussion. And one of the problems with Canada, I guess, is Trudeau has been perpetually struggling to reconcile the fact that his opponents want to portray him as this sort of pretty boy image, bit of a dilettante, not tough on policy not really delivering. And and that I think remains the challenge as he goes into the next election.
0: The thing they asked me to talk about at the conference was the differences between campaigning from opposition and campaigning for elections when you're in government, and in his case, in government and having won three times. Um, and I was explaining that our, the frame that we always used was lots done, lots to do, lots to lose, lots done. You focus on your record. And I think he has got a pretty good record in all sorts of different areas. Lots to do. It's always about the future, and lots to lose that 's about your opponents. if you go that way that 's what you lose and and, and I think he' he 's good enough to sort of work that frame and it was It was um, the guy though Paul because the thing i think the Canadian politics I guess if Australian politics sometimes cr- comes across as being a lot rougher even than ours, Canadian politics historically has maybe come across as being a, maybe being more a bit more gentle um, but this guy Paulvre is definitely taking it to a different place and um Trudeau had this word that he used to define Poilieva's vision, which was brokenist. Basically, he wants everything to be broken because that's the way that he thinks he can can get into power. Um, But it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out because the right, for some reason, I think the right are focused on this woke thing. I think we see the same here with the kind of Lee Anderson, Braverman types, is that they don't really have a great record. There's not – if you – you know, putting – party bias to one side as, as as objectively as I can, if you compare most governments of our lifetime, they have achieved more, they have more to point to than this government has over thirteen years i'm not really clear about the vision for the future, what it is i don't i wouldn't know how to explain it, and so therefore the culture war stuff is where a lot of them tend to go. They feel more comfortable there. And that's definitely what's happening with this guy, probably Evra.
1: Finally, uh, we'll, we'll get him on the um, the podcast uh, soon. Michael Ignatieff, if you want a, a route into understanding Canadian politics for listeners, has written a couple of books, fire and ashes, which is a very, very painful personal account of his evolution from being a Harvard academic to becoming the leader of the liberal party in Canada. And a, leading the Liberal Party into this catastrophic defeat before handing over to Trudeau. Um, And it's a wonderful way of describing things that really have relevance to the United States and Britain, because it's a story of how, as you say, the very thoughtful, measured style of Canadian politics that was associated with figures like Lester Pearson, and in a more charismatic way with Trudeau's father, Mm. beginning to be torn apart, particularly by the populist conservative right, initially under Stephen Harper, and now on a poly- and the way in which the liberal tradition sometimes struggled to respond to that and reinvent itself as a way of doing that. So Michael Ignatieff, definitely worth reading on Canada. Mm. Another theme perhaps for us to explore is this theme of intellectuals and politics. So he was this academic who became a Harvard uh, became a went from Harvard to become a Canadian politician in an instant. A bit in the tradition of, you know, Vargas Llosa, who ran for the Peruvian presidency, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who kept resisting running for the Colombian presidency, and of course, Václav Havel uh, in Czechoslovakia.
0: Yeah. But so, so here's, I always thought, I always thought about Michael Ignatieff watching him. I thought, I thought he was, when he wasn't a politician and he came on television, I thought, God, that guy's really smart. That guy really understands the world. That guy's really impressive. When he became a politician, I, I didn't feel the same. I, and I don't know why that is. He probably was speaking in the same way. But I wonder. I mean, who can we? Who can you think of in the British scene that is like that? That you look at somebody, you think they're they're really smart, they really understand the world. But are they really cut out for for politics? Or do we not need more people like that who go into politics and basically change it so it does become cleverer and more intelligent and less kind of yeah, what but, it is now? I, mean, I, I it's very interesting. Like, I guess many people who deeply
1: fond of David Miliband, probably see in David Miliband a lot of the intelligence and articulacy and a lot of their nostalgia and their desire for him to come back is partly arranged around that. Um, But uh, Michael's book, and we we can get into this when we interview him, is very much about the gap between being a very, very thoughtful person and the skills that you require for the sort of brutal hand-to-hand combat of daily politics. Anyway, something to push into when we get him on. So I think time to move to a wrap. And you probably have to go and do another seven interviews, don't
0: you? I will, well, I, I want to thank you for being so patient. I cannot believe that the, the BBC did not have reliable Wi-Fi for our connection. So I had to run around the corner. I'm sitting in the basement of Tony Blair's office around the corner. For once, you were waiting for me as opposed to the occasions when I'm waiting yes. for you to log on from various airport lounges. That's true. I'm glad that, you know, occasionally I can wait for you and uh,
1: have have a very good rest of the day and very good luck with the proper formal launch of But What Can I Do?
0: (laughs) Plug of the day.
1: Thank you, Rory. All the best. Thank you and goodbye.